Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Seven, starring Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, Arlie Ermey, and Kevin Spacey. Directed by David Fincher, released in 1995 on a budget of $33 million, grossed over $327 million at the box office, and I would say still to this day, you know, nearly 20, well, 21 years later now at this point, still leaving audiences walking out of it going, man, I have no idea what that was, but it was messed up. Oh yeah, like some, I saw some commenters say that you know every every year there's going to be at least one generation of people that have not seen this movie before and are going to be left as miserable as everyone else. Fincher takes the everyday things in life sometimes and just makes them absolutely horrible. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, he's done that in my life in cinema so many different times. I mean, he ruined space forever with <laughs> the Dower Alien Three, and then right. you know, then, then he then he killed you know birthday parties with the game, and then <laughs> you know buddy cop movies. This one, and then then he ruined marriage with that Gone Girl thing. That's right. And so I mean, yeah. So. Uh, uh, no, I, I kid about that because I say that David Fincher doesn't want me to like his movies. He wants me to be abused by them over and over. And I keep going back to them for the same thing. Cause, uh, the man, the man's got a, got a style. There's no doubt about it. We could spend a whole podcast talking about it. I think our friends actually over at the, the old Hollywood saloon did spend a podcast talking about right. David Fincher. You can check that out. John Jansen makes some excellent points about him, but this one, man, I mean, this was, this was a big one for Finch because Alien 3 did not go as he wanted it to. I mean, he totally disowns that movie. And the studio didn't like it. It didn't make the money everybody thought it was supposed to. I mean, it was. there were a lot of people wondering, could this guy really do anything? And then 7, I think, cemented him as a big-time filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, Alien 3, I mean, every, everyone involved says, you know, that they didn't have a, they didn't have a script as they were filming. They were making it up as they went. And you can tell watching the movie. It's a total mess. And if, if you're a Fincher fan, it's not like Jaws where you go back and watch Jaws or even Sugarland Express and go, oh, there you go. There, there, there's, uh, you know, evidence of the master at, at play. Or, I mean, dual, I mean, not Sugarland Express, but it's like, clearly this guy's making on to great things. You watch Alien 3 and it's like, you know, it's a, it's a very average, you know, it's, it's maybe passable, but overall it's, it's a very weak movie. And I, you know, Fincher disowns it. I disown it. And, uh, I often think that, you know, that kind of doesn't count as his, as his first movie. Like, like, like seven, seven has the total package of, you know, his visual style and actually having the good performances and, you know, and first and foremost with this movie, you know, an incredible story and, you know, Absolutely. I, I, credit has to go to Andrew Kevin Walker, the scriptwriter here, um, for what he crafted um, and the story that was there. Because 
without that good story, the performers have nothing to work from. There's, you know, there's nothing else there. And Fincher had nothing to build from. I, I mean, this is a guy that look, you know, some of his films, eh, they, they hurt me. I mean, like eight millimeter, I've, I've still never seen the end of that. And, <laughs> and part of it is because that movie was so screwed up. I was, I was like sitting there literally just said, I can't deal with, you know, what I'm watching in front of me, you know, but then, I mean, yeah. you know, he's written, he's written, you know, he wrote the, the Sleepy Hollow adaptation, which I actually, I will tell you now, I think is, is sort of underrated. That's a pretty good little, Big you time. know, Burton and, and depth thing. Maybe sometime uh, we'll, we'll dig around to that one. He's written a lot of cool stuff that I've liked, but this, you know, by far is just, uh, just a master stroke uh, for screenwriters. I mean, they, they get them every now and then they talk about them every now and then you get one that just really hits it. And I think the, the whole thing here um, is fantastic. And I can remember specifically seeing this when I told the first half of this story back in the Halloween retrospective that I talked about my friend Al that would go to the dollar movie theater with me my freshman year of college. And we saw Halloween six in this you know cheap theater in, in North Alabama where I'm from. And we also like a couple weeks later went and saw this movie called seven, which neither one of us had any idea what it was about. We knew it was Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt and like guns. And it was a cop thing. And we, we just thought, <laughs> ah, that'll be, you know, I like cop movies. Sure. You know, and, and we like we went to like the nine forty five showing with you know maybe thirty other people. We walked and like walked out of the theater, Kurt, and I promise you there wasn't a peep from anybody. Nobody said yeah. a word. We got in his car, drove all the way back to Florence, which was about twenty minutes at the time, and neither one of us said anything except, "Dude, what the fuck?" Yeah, <laughs> so, oh, yeah. That, was, that 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 reminds me like uh, the big Hollywood premiere. I can't imagine you know the Entertainment Tonight interviews on the red carpet for this movie, but it happened. And Tarantino said, you know, uh, when he came out of the movie, he walked right up to David Fincher and said, great movie, man. I feel like shit. <laughs> and, uh, and that, you know, that, that'll that lead into how I first watched this movie. This was always one of those movies my dad just wouldn't let me watch uh, when it came out, you know, 1995. And uh, he let me watch pretty much, you know, anything but two movies before I turned 17. That was Pulp Fiction and Seven. And of course, not being allowed to watch it just made me want, want to watch it even more, especially. Of course. Hearing, yeah. Uh, yes, especially when you hear exactly what the plot, uh, was. That's what got me into it. This idea of a, a serial killer killing people and the theme of the seven deadly sins. It's just, you know, messed up. And I knew, and, and all the buzz about it was that it was up to 1995. It was maybe without question the darkest film ever made. And I knew. There was a head in a box, and I'll get into how I knew about that later on. But eventually, saw it on cable, on IFC, and then I saw it on DVD, then the Blu-ray, and I've seen it at least ten times now. You know, including all the the the, the fantastic DVD commentaries that are on that uh, that that set. And uh, it's weird to say with a movie this disturbing, but uh, I I love it. This is one of those movies uh, I've only ever watched alone. Because no one ever wants to watch Seven a second time unless you're a morbid movie geek like me. Uh, and when I think about the movie, or if it comes up, I think, oh, yeah, Seven, I want to watch that again. And, you know, maybe I will. But then I get to the ending, and once it cuts to black, I always think, yeah, I don't think I need to watch this again for a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'd, I'd seen the game before before this movie. It was on cable. I was like 12. So, you know, that was before I cared about who made a movie. Seven came along right when I did start to care who made movies, and I made sure to remember David Fincher. And from then on, he's be, he absolutely is one of my four or five favorite filmmakers, uh, living filmmakers working today. Because there's things he does that just nobody else does quite the same way or certainly as well. And all of those things 
are in some vein negative or unpleasant. And uh, we'll get into some of those extremely unpleasant things as we proceed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the guy has a style that is meant to unnerve you. And, uh, you know, there are filmmakers that can do that because they can, you know, rub it in your face so much. Rob Zombie comes to mind, uh, you know, and then you get people that are just shocked, you know, exploitation people like Tom Six and, you know, hacks <laughs> like that. But Fincher's on a different level because it's it's an artistry with him and his work. Like, it's it's macabre, but it's art. And that's the only way I can describe it. My wife's actually seen this movie a couple of times too. She watched it again with me in this <laughs> review. I convinced her to do it. And she's like, I forgot how messed up this is. And I was like, yeah, this is really, this one you walk away from and you're like, I need to like put Aladdin in or something. Like, yeah. I need, you know, I'm going to put on some pop music, something because you just feel dirty at the end of this movie. And I think that's always the way I felt at the end of this is, man, it is such a friggin' downer. <laughs> and it, it really is. Even though it's exactly what you want to happen, you want, you know, the end to go the way that it ultimately does, at least with what Brad Pitt does. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it still doesn't make you feel good about it. I mean, it's it's a tough thing to get into. I think we need to do a plot summary, though, before we get any deeper here, Kurt. So real quick, kind of summarize seven for anybody that hasn't seen it by any chance, but just to lay the groundwork of where we're going to go today. Sure thing. So. uh one week from retirement, Detective William Somerset, Morgan Freeman, tackles a final case with the aid of his newly transferred partner, Detective David Mills, Brad Pitt. They soon discover a number of elaborate and grisly murders committed by the same serial killer, Kevin Spacey, targeting people he thinks represents each of the seven deadly sins. Somerset also befriends Mills's wife, uh, Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who is pregnant and afraid to raise her child in a crime-riddled city which uh, goes unnamed throughout the movie. After many twists and turns in the investigation, the killer, John Doe, turns himself in and promises to lead the two detectives to the two remaining victims. Upon arrival, we learn those victims are Mills' wife, whose head arrives in a box via courier, uh, and the killer himself, who hopes to goad Mills into shooting him, which he does. The film ends with Somerset deciding to stay on and provide any help he can for his damaged partner, and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, happily damaged forever. Yeah. Is that, I, I like how uh, you, you provided that detail there about the city goes unnamed or whatever. And I, I came up with a, a word for it because it's it's one of those great things about Fincher, too. He gets into such detail. The city so, goes so unnamed because every car tag is completely black. Like, you <laughs> can't find one in there. Like, somewhere and he had a day going, we need to make sure all the tags are black. You know, I'm sure there was, like, a meeting about it, you know, because he's just that kind of detail freak. But I came up with a name for this. I call it Megapolis. And <laughs> this is just sort of where these things happen, you know, this this kind of thing. Because it could be, I mean, I understand it was shot like partially in Philadelphia and New York and L.A. and Houston and God knows where else. Probably wherever they just found a random road that they like, they would shoot this thing at. And uh, for 33 million bucks, he and his cinematographer got a lot out of using existing stuff to bring this nameless city to life oh yeah and yeah the whole the whole the whole nameless city thing and just uh, you know the the, the, the it's it, it's a combination of like a a city that fincher and company you know created for this movie that you know right. is such an such a nightmare it's like his own version of you know, like of of gotham city but even worse and at the same time it's so recognizable i mean even to me you know <laughs> in edmonton alberta there's certain just the way he shoots a city 
just makes you think of every city you've ever ever been in, uh, good or bad. And uh, we'll get into, you know, uh, what Fincher and Andrew Kevin Walker are saying about the city as we proceed. But it's uh, as far as like a, a movies like about city life, I think that's like this and Taxi Driver are kind of the definitive, well, you know, dark versions of the city. Oh yeah. Big time. It's it's every seedy, awful thing you can think of. You know, always think about the way directors use cities and things like Michael Mann has a way of showing you Los Angeles from so many different points of view because if you haven't been there, you don't realize how big of a place that really is. I mean, it is a sprawling, sprawling city and it, you can you can spend hours driving across it you know ri- literally uh, not just because of the bad traffic either I mean, it's that <laughs> big and he likes to show you different things like you, th- you like think of heat versus like uh, collateral you know yeah. which are you know di- totally different you know looks at la and stuff fincher has this way of creating places even in places that look familiar like the game i think it's supposed to be new york city or la or something but it, again it's sort of this m- megapolis that could be anywhere you know, it's, it's, it, it's, you see all these beautiful, pristine buildings, but he puts you in on the ground level where you see the dirt and the grime and particularly this. And that's what, something that hit me this time watching it, Kurt, was all of that griminess and like, I, I don't know, the blackness and bleakness of that prison planet that was in Alien 3. It comes across here, even though we got different art directors, we got different, you know, cinematographers, everything. I think some of that he held on to and used and i say it works really well oh yeah i mean like that's 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 fincher to the core is all about you know he, he no one knows how to make uh unpleasant and yet uh and yet visually cool looking stuff uh and yeah i mean like all of his movies even even the even the social network makes harvard look kind of like you th- like before yeah. i saw the social network i thought of harvard as you know the, like just you know prestige top of the not top notch school after watching that movie he just shoots in a way it looks kind of dank and even cheap even though it wasn't filmed in harvard but he he just like he just he just makes everything look he makes everything look uh, terrible and yet uh uh stylistically good Oh, he's, he's good at making things look seedy. I forgot that he ruined Facebook for me, too. Thanks for reminding yeah. me. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I think he, he builds atmosphere because the city in itself is a character in this story. I think that's the thing that sort of hit me watching it this time and really trying to piece apart. Cause I've seen this movie a ton. So I, I know the story, right? And I'm trying to, you know, nitpick through little pieces here now and watching it for this review. And I realized the story, the city is as much a, a character here as anything because John Doe, Kevin Spacey's character, he doesn't even show up until 90 minutes into the movie, yeah. you know, and, and which is crazy. I mean, it's like the shark in Jaws. You never see it, you know, because he's right. just always there. But everything about the city and its awfulness and all this stuff, it's, it's in everything Somerset says uh, and everything that, you know, Mills hopes to get out of the big city and everything Tracy hates about it. It's everything that drives John Doe to do the heinous shit that he does. And that's what's amazing is the city's as much a character as anything else here. And, and I love how we're thrown right into this. We're thrown into a crime that we never see anything else about. It's a domestic violence crime gone wrong, right? Where, you know, the, hmm. I think Morgan Freeman's line is great. He's like, look at that passion all over the wall, yeah. you know, or whatever they are. And I mean, it's, it's horrible, but you just see this man that is completely broken by the system and the place around him and all the years he spent 
doing these things and he's done. He's just like riding the clock out, ready to go until this awful thing lands in his lap, you know, almost uh, happenstancely, which is uh, when you look at it, you, you have to ask, is it? But uh, I, I love the opening though, that we get with, with Freeman and we get introduced to um, Mills and we, we kind of get a, a sense of what's going on there and it just sets the scene for what's coming up. And then I would do want to talk about the title sequence in a second, but that opening scene in that house with the two of them and the, the back and forth, I, I think it's a great introduction for both actors and both characters. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, the, the movie, like, you know, the movie opens basically within th- whatever it is, three minutes. We basically get an entire day. We get him waking up and then going to sleep. And we see this is what a typical day is for him. He wakes up. He doesn't look, he's in a particularly good mood and his day as he goes, him, him going into the office is him walking into some dingy building where someone is dead. He's a homicide detective. Right. So it was, his, his job revolves around corpses and, and the way the day, like, is also, uh, just to mention the sound design, uh, I don't know if I noticed this 100% until watching it last time with, with the, these headphones I got is that, uh, he wakes up in his, you know, he's got a nice looking apartment, but, you could just hear the sounds of his neighbors screaming at each other, like it's you know the beginning of Raging Bull. And when he goes to sleep, it's kind of the exact same thing, and, and, and with along with the sound of the traffic. And and yeah, this is a guy who's done. And the, the movie does open in a way that you're just like you you totally he doesn't need to say he why he's done. You just look at this day. It's like yeah, I'd be I'd be wanting to get away from this too. I think the thing you get from him too is you watch the steps he goes through to get ready to to go out. You know, everything's very ordered. He picks up his badge, his gun, his knife, you know, his knife, he's got a switchblade. He's all these little pieces, but everything's very organized. It's very put together. As juxtaposed to, you know, six or seven minutes later when we get to see Mills wake up, everything's just kind of thrown together. It's a it's a haphazard mess. And he just, you know, he's got his ties already pre-tied on a rack, which everyone will tell you that'll ruin your ties. But, you know, <laughs> he's he's very wrinkled and he's just sort of just going with it and kind of making it up as he goes along. Where Somerset is much more, he's experienced and this is, you know, his world. And he's, the thing that gets me is that metronome. You know, because I, being a music guy, I know what that thing is. And it's also the bane of my existence sometimes because trying to play <laughs> along with one of those, if you don't have good natural rhythm, is just hell. But <laughs> anyway, he uses that to go to sleep because it is a good sleep match. I mean, it'll, it'll help you knock yourself out. It's a counting sheet kind of thing. And I love that that's what he can focus in on out of all of that noise. He can focus in on that tick tock back and forth to help him go to sleep. And even at some point in the movie, though, he wrecks the thing because he's just so he can't concentrate on it anymore. It's how much this gets to him. But I love that that's the opening of him is that he is, in spite of all of this chaos, madness or whatever, he can detach himself from all of it enough that I, you know, I'm just going to go to sleep and be done. You know, and I, I like that about this film because it gives us a real contrast besides age and race and everything between these two partners here and, and career ambition. It, it, they're totally different people. Like you would never put these people together in any form at all. And I, I think that's why it works so well, but it's a, it's a heck of an opening. Oh yeah. And one, and one last thing about it is that like the, the one thing about this Somerset is, uh, you know, he's a week away from retirement. He's also a guy's thinking like, he's quitting and he's, he's also kind of thinking like, well, you know, it can't possibly get any worse than this. And then the credits start. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about that credit sequence, man. Uh, I, a friend of mine detailed something to me that I didn't know. That is a Trent Reznor version of a David Bowie song, uh, which <laughs> I did not know that until he told me that. And I want to tell you, it is 
it's one of the weirdest set of sound. I think Trent Reznor as a, an artist and composer comes up with some really strange soundscapes anyway, but it is perfect for that just odd collage of things that we see because what we see and what we know now is that that's John Doe. Like, and mm-hmm. apparently that was one of the production designers ideas is that he went to, um, Fincher and said, you've got all these books that you've spent all this money on creating for that apartment scene. And I think you need to feature them somewhere and, and you need to have somebody working on them. And it looks like it's John Doe coming up with just the most crazy wild stuff you can come up with. And it's all these weird images that just mean nothing to anybody now. But if you watch the film a couple of times, it will. And I mean, everything you want to know, everything you're going to need to know about his plan, what he's doing is there in that uh, opening sequence. And it's scary how good that is. Oh yeah. And it's uh it's such a great contrast. Like, you know, that opening, the op- opening three minutes, that's how Somerset, that's how his mind works. You know, the, the very, very ordered and very calm cut to, that credit sequence, that is what, this is how Fincher says, this is how John Doe, this is how he sees the world. Like looking through the world through his eyes, everything's, you know, static and just messed up and that the squealing of the soundtrack of, and the images of John Doe as he goes about his business shaving off his, his, uh, his fingerprints and we just see these, you know, messed up <laughs> images of, of dead bodies and, and, and corpses and him and stringing together his, uh, his, I think that's uh, some of his diary and the whole thing, it just un, unsettles you and, uh, I'd love to have seen this in the theater because uh, that's the only thing about Fincher is he always does great title sequences. If he does a title sequence, like I, I instantly think of him, you know, my favorite one of his is the one for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which, uh, yes, that's much fabulous. like, oh yeah, and much, much like with Seven, when that one end, when that one ends the first time you watch, you're just like, what the hell was that? And, you, and you're just, you're totally off your game, but then boom, the, like you don't have time to catch up. You're just stuck in that, in that, you know, uh, discomfort for, you know, for the remaining two hours. Yeah, that, the, just on a side note, too, that one from the Dragon Tattoo, I'm like, this is the James Bond uh, Casino Royale sequence, but if it's a yeah. freaking horror movie. No. I was like, that's exactly what that is. It's just black oil and weird and David Fincher. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. that's all you can say about it. Yeah, and I think it's you get the minds of the three people. You nailed it. We see the mind of Somerset, how he works. We see the mind of John Doe, how he works. And then we see the mind of Mills, how he works. He's young, he's in love, but he's ambitious, you know, and he's, he's on the go and he doesn't have time to worry about how he looks because he's worried about the case and, you know, he's trying to get stuff done. And that leads us to our first, uh, of the seven deadly sin crimes here, the, the gluttony one. And I, I'll tell you, this has always grossed me out. I mean, it's such a, just a startling scene of, Basically, what the guy was forced to eat himself to death until somebody kicked him and he burst from the inside. I mean, how gruesome! Oh yeah, that was. I think it was my dad. You know, he told me I couldn't see the movie, but he described that scene in detail. And for some, it was so disgusting. But you know, it was the same as when someone described the stuff in Saw. Just like, well, I, I for some reason I, I got to see that. That's, yeah, that's exactly. So messed up. And. And, uh, yeah, that, that opening scene, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, the gluttony scene where we're in the, the, mo- the dingiest possible apartment, uh, Fincher on the commentary talks about how, uh, you know, the art direction that he told him we need it, forget how we're going to fit the cameras in there, get it as cramped and as dank as humanly possible so that it'll just look that much smaller when we eventually fit the cameras in. And he said a new line cinema executive, you know, came in, you know, wasn't meddling, just coming in to, you know, take a look around, make sure they were, you know, spending the money properly, whatever. And, uh, you know, I guess her schedule, which she was going to be there for a few hours, she walked into that set 
where the dead, where the guy is sitting face down in the spaghetti and there's cockroaches all over the place and it stinks and it's just, you know, you can't, you can barely see and it just looks like hell. She took one look and it's like, okay, yeah, this is good and went home that day. (laughs) I can believe it too. That's funny too, because, you know, knowing New Line, I'm like, if only Bob Shea had been involved in this, he'd be like, holy hell, why don't we do this one of those Freddy movies? You know, because I mean, it's, it's the best Hellraiser Freddy set that never got to those. I mean, oh, yeah. it really is. And, uh, but no, it, it gives you this sense of crampedness. I think that's a great call out you make there is how cramped all this looks and inside of this big city and all this stuff. We, all these sets are closed. They're small. Like there's the only time it ever feels wide open is in some of those aerial shots going over the top of the buildings and in that end scene out in sure. the, the middle of nowhere. But everything else is so cramped. And I, I love that about this film because it sort of reveals itself in those pieces. It gets bigger as it opens up and as the story opens up. And that's, that's not by mistake. I mean, that's done on purpose and it's the mark of a smart writing and a very, very adept filmmaker. Oh yeah. And this is a good time to bring up uh, what I think is the, you know, there's the story and you know, the, where the story goes in terms of how messed up it is, but there's certain the, uh, what I think the one thing this movie did that no, I don't think any other film does quite as well is uh, how gruesome it is without being that violent. Like the, the like a lot of people will probably instantly say, "Oh man, the, you know, Seven was horribly." Apparently, Fincher said people told him that. Man, the movie was so violent. It's like, really? When did you see any violence? It's like, well, and they got to think. It's like y- you don't you don't yeah. see any violence, but all of the crime scenes in this movie are so elaborately and you know well done. And uh, Mills and Somerset are always constantly describing what happened in that crime scene that you cannot help. But whether you want to or not, you're thinking about John Doe, you know, holding a gun to the back of the guy's head, making him eat bowls of spaghetti to the, and then, and then kicking him till his, you know, stomach burst. Like, you don't see that in the movie, but you, you, at least I can't help, but, 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 you know, picture that. And that happens throughout the entire movie. I think the only, like, one of the only bits of violence is, you know, the the final kill of the, that's the only death in the movie is that, is that final kill. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a gruesomeness to it. I just keep going back to that word. I mean, when they find the guy that's tied to the bed in a little while and stuff, it's just, it's just gruesome. And it's all done in words. I always try to describe this film to somebody and watching it on the big screen. And I have vivid memories of this, even all these you know years later. And one of the things I took away from it, and I always do from this, is it's like watching a book being read to you because books can be so descriptive right and this movie all the violence in it unfolds like a book you don't ever see any of it you just see the aftermath of it and then you're told how it went down in retrospect or in guess by the detectives and having it told to you it's just chilling. I mean, I think to the time that doctor is, is telling them about all the stuff that the, the pedophile that's tied to the, you know, the bed and his, his hand gets used as, you know, help me on one of the, the, the second crime scene or whatever. When, when he tells him all the stuff he's had done to him and then he just looks at him and says, and he still has hell to look forward to. I'm like, I mean, it's just the most dour, chilling <laughs> thing in the world. But all that dialogue, all that stuff works because the scenery fits it there's i mean the music here is so minimalist it's so john carpenter-esque in that way that it's just not over the top it doesn't beat you over the head with it at all it's it's just subtle enough to hammer home all the points and and that's the thing you see and i mean at this point i'm on somerset side i'd want out too i wouldn't want to get involved in this at all 
I don't want nothing. I mean, he's sitting in, I love Arlie Ermey, by the way. Great, you know, almost cameo yeah. here. He's really in like three scenes, but he's fantastic as the uh, captain. And, and, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman says, I don't want anything to do with this. And then Mills is like, yeah, fine, go away. I'll do it. And he's like, no, nah, you ain't getting this either. And, it, and I love how he's in command the whole way, but he keeps looking at Somerset like, really? What, why are you so, you know, backing off of this? And I love their back and forth and how Somerset wants nothing to do with this. And who can blame him at this point? Yeah. He, you know, you know, he, he like, he's a, uh, he's a pro. Like it's it's kind of the shame that that Arlene Lermy he knows he's like he's losing his best man here, and uh, and like more and, and Somerset he just knows you know uh, he just like he can just tell you know but you know it's just gonna go on like we're, I'm probably like we're probably not gonna find the guy he just instantly worst case scenario too he's not he's not gung ho Mills is like oh we're gonna get this guy and Somerset's just like I you know I don't I don't want to get this guy I don't I don't want to try to get this guy I just you know I don't want to have anything to do with this and. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's uh, he, he really is just, he's, he's just that done, even though like, you know, maybe any other cop would be like, well, we got to get this guy. He'd be like, this is someone else's problem. Yeah. And he wants to lay it off. And I, I think that, again, that shows you the juxtaposition between the two of them and how they're working together. And that kind of leads us to the second crime scene of the, the lawyer who's been made to cut a pound of his own flesh out, basically, yeah. and bled out on the floor. I mean, what a, what an awful awful way yeah. to go and die but to to again it's all all you see is the blood stain and you see the word green on the wall and that's sort of what connects these two things back together because it's somerset that ends up connecting them both but before that the way that's all revealed to us is you don't know what's happening and it all ends with mills finally clearing the room and just sitting at the guy's desk going holy cow what have i gotten myself into because he can't wrap his mind around this kind of twi uh, twisted sick shit either and i think that's what's neat is you know too many times the buddy cop movie they're like super geniuses and great shots and everything from the start right it's good to see guys that actually struggle to figure out what the hell's going on oh yeah and about this greed murder, you know, bleeding a lawyer out in his office, you know, uh, perhaps I would say the least tragic uh, death of the movie because I recently watched a series on Netflix called Making a Murderer and the idea of certain lawyers being forced to slice off a pound of their own flesh doesn't bother me too much, but I think a lot of America agrees with you, by the yeah. way. So, uh, but not, and be careful what you watch in that documentary, by the way, but, sure, but yeah, anyway, yeah. So, but no, you know what that, but isn't that the old joke? Like, you know, what, what's a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the sea, a good start. I yeah. mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the old joke, right? And, and that, and I think that's, that's what we're supposed to feel like the, the obese guy you feel sorry for, cause you're like, man, this guy, somebody made him eat himself to death how terrible right this is just cruel and then this one you're like eh, it's just a lawyer i mean like really <laughs> there's i mean it's hard to have sympathy yet for the victims because we haven't been put in their situation yet in their place and and i think that's on purpose too i i don't think that's a mistake because at this point we don't understand why the killer's doing what he's doing either that hasn't been revealed to us and so it it's not until much later that you realize how tragic all of these are Oh yeah, and and once again, like we we see nothing, but we but we see the blood, and we picture the scene, especially when they're talking about um, Mills and Somerset are asking themselves, "What's the most expensive uh, flesh on the human body?" And and they say, "Oh, the love handles." And I'm just so like again, the movie is forcing me to picture this 127 hour scenario where a guy has a gun on me, and I'm wondering. Like I'm, I'm. You're literally looking at your own sides. Like, could I? I wonder, would that work? Could, would that make a yeah. pound? And just like it's like it just spine tingling. 
Yeah. I, again, it's, it's, it evokes a response, even though we don't get to see it. And that's the art of a good screenplay and one that's being delivered well, too. I think it, Brad Pitt, as an actor, there are times when he's really good and there's times when he's really just there and you know it's just kind of there for me or whatever. Morgan Freeman always does a good job with performances, even in really goofy stuff that he chooses to do sometimes. But he and Pitt here are dead on. And I think a lot of that is them and sort of where they were in their careers at this point. And I think Fincher's getting a lot out of them too. I think the alien three experience of not having a script that was nailed down and, and still getting the performance he got out of Sigourney Weaver taught him a lot about sometimes you just got to let the really good actor take the thing and do something with it. And that's one of the cool things in the commentaries to hear Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt talk about the kind of freedom they had to do things, but always knowing that they had Fincher there to guide them through their decisions. Oh yeah. And they, about Brad Pitt, I would, I would have to say if there is a weak link in the cast, it is him. He's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I think a lot of actors would just look weaker when you're standing next to Morgan Freeman in, the, in this movie. I think a guy like, Edward Norton might have been a better choice for the character, yeah. but but like you know, if you're a movie studio, you're going to go with 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 Brad Pitt, like Fincher, and yeah. you know, this this spawned a relationship between Fincher and and Pitt that spawned two more iconic films with Fight Club and Benjamin Button. And Fincher said it's been nothing but great for his career. He said you know it's you know it's really easy to get a movie made when you're friends with Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah, he's exactly right too. By the way, so but yeah. you know what, that, and that's fine. I think it, you know, Brad Pitt was a Hollywood it guy at the time, and then he took this dark, gritty movie and did this thing with Morgan Freeman. I think it gave people a different element of him. He got better roles. He wasn't just the hunky uh, action star or guy opposite in the rom com. You know, he got better yeah. stuff to do because. He pulled off a great role here. And of course, Morgan Freeman's careers, uh, you know, he, he got started. He's been around a long time before any of us knew who he was. And then when we started paying attention to him, it just got even more and more interesting. And I mean, the guy never fails to deliver what exactly what you want out of, you know, the kind of performance you're getting here. But I love the fact that there's so much confusion um, amongst them early on. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when they're sitting down and you've got, Somerset sort of walking the captain and Brad Pitt through his theory about all this, this seven deadly sins thing. And the the best thing in it is Arlie Ermey just picking up the random phone going, this isn't even my desk and slamming <laughs> it down. I do that all the time, just, you know, for the heck of it. I'm like, this isn't even my desk, you know, and just, just have fun with it. It's, it's like the clerks. I'm not even supposed to be here today line. Yeah. I mean, it's just great, but it's, it gives you some humanity and a little bit of levity in the middle of all this just crazy stuff that's going on. But I love how this theory is coming together and you get the captain looking at like are you out of your mind and then on the back end though brad pitt is i mean he even says i'm all over this like he's <laughs> soaking this up he's like yeah this totally works for me and i love how he just takes this and runs with it yeah it, it's fantastic yeah mills clearly he does not know what he's in for this is his first case and he wants to he's the guy who you know he wants to be the uh, popeye doyle he wants to be the big he, pr he probably thinks he can get some some no real notoriety out of this case. Like he looks at this as like, oh, this is going to be a great case. And Freeman, I mean, Somerset looks at this, this is going to be utter hell. It's like, it's only going to go down yeah. from the gluttony murder. 
Yeah, exactly. He's not going to get any better from gluttony and greed here. I mean, and and I love how Pitt, you know, he, he does this whole bit about I worked homicide for five years or whatever, but not in this city. You know, like they have this whole argument about it, but he hasn't seen anything like this. And Somerset, to the point, realizes that that he spends all night in that library, which I, it was a great scene, by the way, punctuated by the, the beautiful classical music there. And he does yeah. all this research on Milton and Paradise Lost and all this stuff, Seven Deadly Sins, and he's pulling all that out. And he puts it together and he just drops it on his desk like okay you want it big boy it's yours and and i love that mills's idea of hitting the books is to get some you know beat cop to go get him a bunch of cliffs nuts i, mean, I yeah. thought that was that was hilarious because you know again and I, I remember back to my freshman year college experience i'm like oh i can totally relate to that <laughs> like yeah <laughs> like those, that's how you got by in a lot of ways so i i thought that was a, a nice uh, moment again for the character oh yeah and the thing about the you know the 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 quote unquote jokes in this movie they're really easy to remember because you can like count them on on one hand uh, and we, one one bit that happened earlier in the gluttony uh, murder is when the the coroner you know lifts up the guy's head the dead the, the fat man's head out of the bowl and says uh, he's dead and Freeman's like yeah thank you doctor and, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, there's only, and I guess I think there's only like three more laughs in the whole movie but. Uh, but they're they're they're, they're well done because you you really need a, a couple moments of lever, levity throughout this movie. Yeah, you do. And this is when the movie takes a break a little bit. Like we get a break from the kills and the murders and stuff because now we get these two guys together and on the same page finally. Because what happens is it all happens because of Mills's wife Gwyneth Paltrow, who I mean, talk about like a nothing role. I mean, she she is in th what, three scenes in this whole movie, and every one of them are amazing and i'm not a huge gwyneth fan just per se i think she's a fine actress or whatever her her mother's really good in and things blood danner's a great actress hmm. but you know gwyneth i can kind of take her leave here and there but she's fantastic in this and i love that she forces mills to basically like give the phone to him i want to invite him over for dinner yeah and it's uh yeah she she really has she only yeah she only has like the three scenes she probably only has maybe like five minutes total in the movie but this is a combination of fincher and andrew kevin walker and gwyneth paltrow is that she makes a very strong impression that you need because you, like w with those few scenes you just you like her and you you, you do feel sorry for her. like you, you know you, you you totally agree with her with everything she's saying about how horrible this city is and so and and so that just makes it that much worse with what happens at the end is that, you know, they didn't just, John Doe didn't just do this to any woman. He did this to this woman that we, we like and, 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 and feel we already felt bad for. And then this happened to her. Exactly. I mean, it's it, of anyone in this film, she's the most innocent of any of them. The only thing she's really guilty of is that she can't open up to her husband about how strongly she hates this place and how scared she is that they're going to have a kid and all this stuff, which of course he doesn't know about. And, and all, I mean, all these things that happen. And I think those are, I mean, they have a fun dinner scene, you know, the whole bit about the, the train rolling by and it rattles the whole home and, you know, all day have a good laugh over that. But the, the coolest thing is she goes to bed and, Mills and Somerset sit in the living room and they lay out all their crime stuff and they start looking and figuring out what are we missing here? You know, and they, they make themselves pay closer attention to what's there. And it leads them back to talk to the lawyer's wife about, is there anything in here that's out of place? And she notices one of the paintings is wrong. Right. And that leads them to the uh, fingerprints of help me. 
And and I love how though that's uh, Somerset who shows Mills you got to be patient. It's not always right in front of you. And you know Mills is over there cracking jokes about how they're all getting screwed, you know, by this guy on this. And Somerset's sitting there dusting for Prince. And I thought that's a great scene to show you. You got to look through things because we'll see Mills do that later. Like he'll spend time working on stuff, but then he triggers himself and he goes off that edge. And that's the difference in the two men. Is I, I think Somerset has that line about you know feeding off your emotions or whatever, and that's clearly Mills and where Somerset does do that mm-hmm. and and about uh the uh the help me on on the on the wall there i want to bring this up is that uh one thing i absolutely love about this movie is i'm a huge uh batman fan and to me what seven is seven is the batman movie they will never make which yes is john doe to me is the best version of the riddler we've ever had in a movie the killer who is leaving clues for the police to lead them exactly where he wants them to go, just toying with them for, 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 for nothing else than his own amusement. And if they ever wanted to do a Riddler, uh, another Riddler movie, they just got to watch seven again and put John Doe in a green suit covered in question marks. And, you know, there's the Riddler. Yeah. Or maybe they should just skip the suit and just go with, I mean, if Christopher Nolan were to do another one, I think that'd be a grand idea and he could get Kevin mm-hmm. Spacey to do it. Thanks. I mean, that, and that's the thing though. And anyway, we'll get to Spacey because again, he doesn't come into this movie until the very end of it. So it's, it's hard to, you know, keep leaving him out of this stuff. But you, as you know, the secret of the movie and you watch this stuff, right? You start thinking about how, Man, like you could go back and see him doing all of these things. You see him going through all these machinations to to get to these different points, and you see him setting these things up for the cops and and stuff like that. And I think that's fabulous. I mean, I think that's that's what makes this so much more fun to watch. And and that great clue. I mean, I I'm a big fan of a good who done it anyway. You know, like that's always fun to and to kind of see the cops figured out as the audience figures it out. And I like the fact that they let you know early on here, you're going to find out who the killer is. Like, we're not going to keep that from you. This is not going to be, you know, a random guy calling a telephone booth or, or anything like that. Like, you're going to know who, who does this by the end of it, but you're going to know it on our timetable, which I, I, I don't know. I love that part about this film. It just, it, it unfolds a little bit at a time the way that our characters are seeing it happen. I mean, that's what's happening here. They are the, ones that are figuring out as they go. And I love the clue of the help me and what it leads them to. And I'll tell you, you talk about something that is evocative and just grotesque is yeah. the guy tied in the bed, the, the sin of sloth. I mean, that is one of the nastiest looking makeup effects and things I have ever seen. Yeah. When I remember, there was one thing I remember before I saw the movie, I was on the internet and they said, they said the, the sloth murder, man, that'll make you jump. And so when I saw the movie and when they pulled the blanket over and reveal the corpse. I thought that's what they meant when that'll make you jump when you see this body. And it was like, so I was, so I kind of, I relaxed a little bit. There's like, oh man, I was just like, at the same time being like, that is one of the most, that is possibly the most gruesome looking. I was about to say corpse, but it's not a corpse. It, it couldn't look more like a, a dead body. And I guess that's the idea. Uh, and I, I can't recall another, uh, it's one of the biggest scares I've ever had in a movie is when, you know, they all, everyone in the room just assumes he's dead. And they stuck the flashlight in his eye. And the cop says, you know, <laughs> the cop tells this guy he thinks he's dead. You got what you deserve. got what you deserve. And he coughs in his face and it's clear he's alive. And Fincher doesn't really go for scares like that in his movies that much. But that is probably his finest horror moment uh, that he's that he's done. 
Oh, that's a fantastic jump scare. I mean, it's a total classic horror scare, too. And, I, you know, John C. McGillney is that guy, the, the SWAT yeah. leader. I think they call him California in the movie. And I love, I like him anyway. And I mean, he's talking about a nothing part. I mean, he's in two scenes, but he's great in them. And you see him lean over and he, I mean, he's, I've known SWAT cops and they are <laughs> cocky. They are just like this. They kind of have to be to do that, you know, kind of work. And they, I mean, they're, he's like, you got what you deserved. And then that, freak coughs at him and he i mean he <laughs> loses his shit i didn't shoot him i mean really that i'm like yeah. man that, how did those cops are the greatest restrained cops ever because cops would have just shot that thing like <laughs> they'd, they'd yeah. have unloaded on it and been oh hell sorry i mean i'm not trying to make light of police brutality but that would have been a natural reaction is pull the trigger <laughs> you know i don't i don't know how they didn't i mean it's the city serves commendation just for that yeah. uh, not not blowing that thing away and then, i mean that's when we get the the you know the hospital scene I referenced earlier and and all that stuff it's just so, I mean you realize this guy found someone that was an awful criminal that we he knew we would go after one he tied him to that bed fed him full of you know drugs and kept him tied there for a year and they found him a year exactly from the and took pictures of it to leave for him cut his hand off and used it as a you know diversion I mean talk about the meticulous thought through process. That this gets, and that's what I wanted to ask you about because knowing where the story veers to and, and how it ends to how it is started here is, do you think John Doe targeted the cops specifically, or these two cops happened to be the ones that came upon his case, and then he figured out these were the ones he was going to have to deal with along the way? Yeah, I think. I think John Doe, like, yeah, those first three murders, he had those, I mean, literally he had the sloth one planned for a year. Uh, but I think he didn't, who knows, like, who knows, maybe his, his, uh, uh, wrath and envy, uh, and, uh, lust and pride murders would have been entirely different until he eventually does come face to face, even though Mills doesn't know that. When he comes face to face with, with Mills. And he, and for some, and he, he looks at his gung ho attitude and how much he thinks John Doe is crazy. And he just thinks, you know, he, he's like, John Doe has found a guy to, like, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna mess, this is gonna be fun. I'm gonna mess with this guy. This guy thinks he's got the drop on me. Well, I'm, you know, and, uh, which comes to one of my favorite moments in the movie is when the, uh, the paparazzo, uh, ta- take, uh, snaps a picture of him. And it's such a, it's it's way more tense the second time you see that movie because it's like he's right there like Somerset and 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 like the entire SWAT team is there and uh, this photographer takes a snap of him and like this entire massive manhunt for John Doe and he came to them right exactly. under their noses and you know if they knew what they were looking for they would have been able to arrest him right there but they, and I love that John Doe you know he as the movie pr- progresses as crazy as he might be. He's clearly super intelligent. He's like he's 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 a master of disguise kind. I mean, and I love that if you know Kevin Spacey's voice, you you know you recognize his voice anywhere, and clearly that's him. And I love that you know Mills spells out his name for the paparazzo, and John Doe you know yells back at him. Yeah, I'm surprised you can spell. And like it's not enough what John Doe ends up doing to this man, but he's got to just like insult him too, like take the piss out of him for for no reason. Well, and I mean, that's the thing. That's, that's what you get about this is because the next scenes are, uh, 
Mills and Somerset updating the captain on how methodical and exacting this guy is. And once you've watched this film a few times and you realize you're like, holy cow, he really is because this is the moment when he realizes. So these are my two adversaries. Okay. Mm, that young one, I'm going to have some fun with that guy. Like you said, like mm, that guy feeds off his emotions. I'm going to have a little fun with that dude. And they, I mean, it gives them this whole thing. They don't know what to do and they don't know where they're going. And, and, and I love how they, they come into this this idea of you know how did he come up with the seven dip sins where where's that tying in or what are we looking for and so they they go through this little side adventure where Somerset shows you that he's not above doing things that are below the board to get information, right? It, he, he pays some in, you know, guy that's got somebody on the inside of the FBI watch list to, you know, get a list of everybody that's checked out these kind of books. Cause you wind up, I don't know if you know this, you know, that that's an old, uh, um, trope, but it actually is true. If you check out certain books, you wind up on the FBI's watch list hmm. in America uh, and you have for years. Like everybody got upset when Verizon's records were by the NSA. I'm like, they've been <laughs> doing this to you for, you know, a hundred years people so <laughs> just before you had cell phones i mean they, this is a known thing and it's one of those like you just sort of accept it as the price of freedom kind of mm-hmm. deals but you could see how that could get used against you right and i'm like well you know if they if this had been a television show and you had like the strength of five seasons to do all this stuff in you could have spent several episodes where they like run down somebody and almost frame somebody for something that had nothing to do with this because he yeah. was doing a term paper on Hitler yeah. or something like that, right? Like <laughs> you could see that. And I'm like, man, I, I'm creating an HBO show for this uh, garish <laughs> film in my this awful film in my my own head because it, it there's no if you stretch this out over people people couldn't handle it. There's no way. But I like the whole who's reading what part and that they're trying to figure out. You know, what are the things that are, that are coming up that are in common for our, our killer here? And, uh, it's smart police work. I, I think we talked about that when we did Heat was that the cops weren't just shoot 'em up bang bang cops. They were cops that actually did real police work and how cool that was to see. And it's neat to see that here on this side too, that these guys, they work at their craft. They're not just lucky. They're, they're smart. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, as you know, as much as this is like a this is a horror film and how gruesome and disturbing it is, the cop side of things is so like well done and researched. Like Andrew Kevin Walker, as much as he's looking into this, you know, you know, Seven Deadly Sins and 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 anatomy books or whatever he's looking into to research this movie, he's very much researching. No other movie would stop. Brad Pitt from kicking that door down. It would, if this was, uh, you know, Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson would just kick the door down and let's go after this guy. But, you know, Somerset, he totally freaks out at the prospect of, well, no, 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 this, this won't hold up in court now, man. Like, we got to worry, we got to think about, like, the trial. Like, that's the, uh, what's that, that's something Somerset talks about is like, all we do as detectives are just writing stuff down just in, in the hopes that, you know, it, it'll play in court. We find a name so that the, the, you know, the DA will say this, this name. Yeah, cut to this will help him go to jail. Like, and Somerset, again with the whole being done with it thing. He's like, and he's and he's also just like, and that's and that's all we do. You know, he's like, we're just we're just yeah. writing, we're just note takers. We're just guys taking pictures, and uh, and, again, and I love his, I, you know. yeah, and it's the whole idea of feeding off his emotions. I love the fact that though the way that goes down is that big chase mm. that that Mills has with John Doe. 
and John Doe lets him live. That's a great chase first. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, it's totally handheld. You're running down these catacombs with these guys. And it's nothing like crazy. They're not doing, you know, parkour or anything like that. They're just running from each other. And John Doe gets the drop on him and I mean, knocks the shit out of him. And his face is screwed up after yeah. this and his hands broken and all this stuff. And I love how, you know, he's got him dead to rights in the rain with that Beretta at his head and he lets him go. And I'm like, wow. I mean, he could have killed him right there. I mean, he had no reason not to. He just was like, eh, yeah, let him go. Don't need to do this. And that wasn't time. And then after, you know, they've kicked in the door and they start, you know, reading through all this stuff and the guy's manifesto and all. I mean, that apartment, we got to talk about that scene in a second. But yeah. to go ahead just for a, a little bit, the phone call that, <laughs> you know, the little 30 seconds on the phone, like, I admire you. I think you're doing great. going to just speed up my timeline after this little incident. And I'm sitting there yeah. like Frank Underwood is on the phone. <laughs> and I mean, it's what it sounds like. But it's, it's that spacey voice. And I'm like, man, this is, is messed up. And it's great. But that apartment, we got to talk about John Doe's apartment, man. That is a great set. That is, yeah, the art direction. This is one of those uh, crime films do not get treated well at the Oscars for the most part. Uh, but this is definitely, this is, of all the crime films that have been made, this is probably has the best art direction of any of them, maybe discounting, you know, the Godfather movies. Because it's just, it's it's a combination of creating, you know, something otherworldly almost, how, how dis- and, and disturbing, like something out of, uh, the most gruesome kind of horror movie. And at the same time, it's like, it's, it's not, t- that, that thing with this whole movie is as horrifying as uh, gruesome as it might be. It is not tough to imagine uh, this stuff taking place as it does. Like uh, there's a certain amount of realism to it. And, uh, and That's yeah, very his, real. And yeah, his lair, it is, it's just, maybe just because they didn't, they, maybe he had a better lighting system that the, the cops just didn't turn on. But it is just such a just just frightening looking place. Like you can't imagine that some this is where a guy hangs his hat, and you know this is where he relaxes at the end of a, this is where a serial killer relaxes at the end of at the end of a day. Right. It's so it's so. I mean, my wife called out a great thing. She said, "What's the deal with the cross over the bed? The neon cross hmm. over the bed?" Which I was like, "That's right out of the Deadpool. You know, the old, the old uh, Jim Carrey sl- scene from the Deadpool, the old Dirty Harry movie." But I said, "I guess you know they're supposed to show he's this twisted zealot of some sort or whatever." I said, "Or maybe he's just nuts." I said, "There's one of two ways you can play this. Like either it's meticulous and it's gorgeous and it looks like a museum, you know, so it's this exacting, or it's like this. It's organized chaos." which is what this guy's place is. And I think this is the better choice because it matches, again, that title sequence in the beginning that we get. So, that I mean, that was a great idea to go back and say, we need to show all that madness early on, and I think they did a great job with it. I, it's uh, it's awesome. And then, to, you know, to come upon Somerset sitting there with that volume and reading, you know, all this stuff, and he's like, there's like 50 volumes of these. It'd take us two weeks just to go through it, you yeah. know, with, with 20 people reading 24 hours a day. And I'm like, holy cow, this guy has spent not only a year planning a kill, right? But he spent, what, a decade getting himself amped up to the point that he can do this stuff? And and that's the thing about this is that you don't realize is that we, we know him for these specific kills that he has but who's to say he hasn't killed a lot more people <laughs> and done a lot more stuff along the way you know to to get himself to this point i wouldn't be surprised about it right as horrible as as he isn't crazy like people talk about this with the joker in, in the dark knight is as nutty as he is 
the amount of planning that comes into play. You you can't just be a total nutbag and, and come up with that. He's clearly he's put a lot of thought into this. He is so he's he's absolutely uh, c- committed to this whatever this scheme is, and you know uh, and what what he thinks is uh, the right thing to do. Uh, I lost my train of thought there. It's okay. I think you're right. I mean, he is he, totally committed to it, and it also shows that these cops. It shows these cops what Somerset has been saying all along is right: is that we're not going to get ahead of this guy. Yeah. Like he is feeding us along the whole way. If you hadn't figured that out by now, guys, that last one, that sloth thing, that should have told you that we're not going to get ahead of this one. We are going to have to just luck into whatever becomes of of this case and and it's part of it is him resigning himself to this being over and and that he's done with it and part of it is he's realizing i'm sucked into this again and and i'm just gonna have to be here until the pool stops swirling you know Hmm. because that's what it is and then the next kill is is maybe the most disturbing one the saturday and lust kill when they they pick up the guy at the when they go to the you know ooh la la club or whatever you want to call that hmm. underground sex dungeon thing, and this guy has essentially killed a what we find out to be a hooker with a device strapped to him hmm. that's basically just a big knife, and he has screwed her to death with it. I mean, just how sadistic that kind of shit is to even come up with that and to make it go, and then punctuated by the confession that we get about it. I mean, again, it's where the words make it twice as bad as it could have ever been had you seen it. Oh, yeah. This, I, I, I definitely was thinking about this when I saw it, is that uh, watching this, you know, the lust scene, that's when I really start to think about, you know, how the movie isn't that violent, but it's all about how it plays on your imagination. And in that regard, I think that this scene uh, you know finding the bodies in the interrogation is the most effective uh, scene in the film in that regard uh uh leland orser is the the guy who plays our you know the living lust victim he's a great character actor you see him all the time and in the 90s he had a nice run of playing guys recounting terrifying stories or just going into a panic like in saving private ryan he plays the pilot talking about a, a horrible plane crash he had and in Alien Resurrection, he plays a guy who finds out there's an alien inside his stomach. That's right. He uses it as a weapon, I think, too. That's right, <laughs> which is one of the cooler things in that movie. And in, and in Seven, he plays a guy who, you know, there's not, there, are, there are literally no, no ways to work around it. John Doe strapped a knife onto his crotch and made him have sex with a woman and kill her. And his recounting of that is so disturbing. Chills. I've seen the movie, you know, ten times. Chills down my spine. Every single time, you know, screaming. He's like, he's screaming. The, the, the performance by that actor is so good. Leland Orser on the commentary, they talk about how before they shot that scene, Leland Orser was just uh, st- standing in the corner, hyperventilating himself, breathing in and out super fast to get himself quivering and shaking like he, w- like anyone would be in that scenario. So, you know, the way he's screaming about how the gun was in his throat, and it's just, just horrible. And again, we don't, you know, we don't see anything. There's we barely see the body left behind, um, mm-hmm. and yet after that scene, you are you 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 just pictured something that you never would have pictured otherwise in your in your life. And I don't think any other movie has played with imagination quite quite as effectively. Oh no! I mean that that is uh, that is one of the most awful kills in this whole thing. I mean, it's just. 
just the the craziness. And what did you realize is in retrospect when you're when you're walking back through it again, having watched it, is when they're in the apartment before they see these boxes on the wall, and this is something that Saw totally rips off later on. It's all these little trophies that sort of mark the kills. Like he's got a bloody lawyer's book, and he's got a can <laughs> of spaghettios, and he's got you know the hand from the the sloth killer or whatever. He's got all that stuff sitting around in there. And then there's this picture in the fourth one, and they're like, "What the hell is that?" And you find out that's the hooker that hmm. he's been following, and he just decides, well, I'm going to go ahead and speed this up. And of course, they, you know, they they chase it around. They figure out that, um, you know, he had this thing made, and they're, you know, they're trying to get back to him. They're trying to find out who he is, and that's the thing that that just blows my mind as they go through this. They they get one more kill in here, and. I wonder, you know, if he's doing it on purpose now so that they can find him and ultimately what he decides is I'm just going to have to go to him or whatever. But he he has the woman where he cuts off her nose and then he gives her a phone taped to glued to one hand and a bottle of pills on the other hand and decide which one you want to be. And of course, she takes the pills and kills herself, you know, and, and I, you know, the pride sin. And I'm like, man, what a what a sadistic. Fuck. I mean, this guy is just gone. And at this point now, I'm like, I want somebody to shoot him. Like, I, he's got to go down in like the most awful way ever. He's got to be impaled on something. You know, if it's a lethal weapon movie, that's what would happen, right? But that's not how it goes. Here's the thing, though, that, that I get on this it, it, that blows me away is that I kind of feel like John Doe is, has been really sloppy these last two kills on purpose <laughs> so that they will catch him. And then they haven't caught him. And so he's like, oh, damn it. And so he goes and as we find out later, he kills Tracy and then just walks into the police station like, I think you're looking for me. And I, I don't know. I love that scene because that's the first real scene we get with Kevin Spacey. And I love the just the way he looks. He's covered in blood. His hands are all cut up. Um, it's, I, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, honestly. There's this movie from the late 70s called When a Stranger Calls. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. They made a remake of it a few years ago. But it, it there's a killer in it who kills two children with his bare hands. And they never show any of this, of course, because it's the 70s. But it's all done in flashback. And you see this guy. And he's like, it, it looks like, that's what Kevin Spacey looks like, is when they showed that guy covered in blood after what he had done to you know people. And I'm like, that that totally evoked that same just chill to it because it's so unnerving to see this bald little guy walk in and that's the guy that's been doing all this yeah i mean as far as like villain entrances go it's like you know you got harry lyman the third man you got darth vader in in, in star wars and john doe in seven the way he shows up is that is right up there screen like screaming detective again the thing with this character is <laughs> the entire film uh, the cops are, you know, they're just, they're, they're trying to catch up to this guy. They, they don't know, you know, until you watch the second time. They're behind the eight ball the entire movie. They, they, they don't even come close to actually getting their hands on this guy. Cause, you know, the entire movie, he just wins. Like he gives himself up, uh, because he's just, he's, he's, maybe he had another idea of, uh, you know, uh, setting up a murder for them them to eventually find him but he said yeah yeah screw it i'm just gonna f- come to them uh, the only one thing i, I always wonder is uh, the, uh why the cab driver picked him up when he was covered in blood like that why the, the yeah. cab driver called the ditch dispatch yeah i'm I'm, I'm dropping a guy off uh he's uh he's covered in uh blood uh, his entire shirt and his arms but uh i wonder how, yeah, how, I, how much of a tip john doe left i mean yeah i mean that's that's what i want i'm like you know what a what an all but again i think that's supposed to show us it's just another detail of how just rotten to the core this city is 
yeah. that the cabbie wouldn't even bother <laughs> to notice. Like, just doesn't even give a damn, you know, eh, whatever, you know, and you just, you take him in anyway. It's just so weird. I, I love the bit here in the surrender and the, the deal is that they, you know, they, he's been, you know, cutting his fingers off, his, his fingerprints off. They don't know anything about him. Ermy sums him up. He said, this guy is independently wealthy and totally off, off his rocker, totally out of his hmm. mind, you know, and, and he's, he is ready to give up this confession and this whole deal back and forth with the attorney and Richard Roundtree, the district attorney, another cameo here, yeah. Shaft is yeah. the DA, which I think is great. I'm like, yes, only Fincher would cast Shaft as the DA, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, but it's cool. You know, it's, I, I like it when directors do this. They grab people just that you'll recognize. You're like, don't I know that guy from somewhere? You know, Nolan does it. Fincher's always done it. It's great yeah. to see. And I, I love that though. Then in that back and forth, he's like, you know what? Yeah, the you know shaft the DA is trying to be you know tough or whatever, and the attorney's like, look, you know, I can totally get this guy off on insanity because, come on, you know, or he's willing to just you know sign off to everything, no problem right now, uh, with one exception. You, he's going to take you to the last two bodies, and it's got to be these two guys right here that do it, you know, and nobody else. You know, it's just these two guys. And I, I don't know. I thought that was. It was weird because you you realize now at this point, right, they're being set up. Like, there's no way this is going to go down easy. Yeah, again, with with, with, with John Doe, uh, much like I was talking about with Andrew Kevin Walker is, uh, is all this Ill's research, along with, you know, John Doe having to figure out how do you keep a guy alive for a year uh, strapped to a bed, is that John Doe, along with reading the Bible and anatomy books, he's he is, uh, you know, he's, he's got the... The law knowledge, you know, of a lawyer. He know he knows, like when he turned himself turning himself in, this is not going to be tough for me to say, oh, I was crazy and spend the rest of his days in a hospital as opposed to jail. Uh, but he wants to mess with Mills uh, one last. Time. Oh, that, that's one thing about when, when he showed up talking about you know the cops being behind the eight ball is uh, watching the movie again. It's like the the. <laughs> The movie's the story is like is 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 already wrapped up by by the time John Doe arrives. Like when when, when whatever whatever day we're at, uh, we're at, we're this on is, Sunday. This at, is a yeah. This is Sunday. Like at the start of Sunday, John Doe's already won. Like when they're looking for the you know looking at the the model with her nose cut off, John Doe. Well, we like maybe John Doe is literally in Mills' apartment right now. Uh, d- d- you know, uh, dealing with 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 Tracy, and he went and he went straight. For, he probably dropped the put the bo- head in the box, uh, put gave it to the courier, and from the courier he went to to the police station. He's just totally in control. Uh, he's got an attitude about how much he's won. Uh, and oh yeah, it's 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 it, it, it's even worse the second time you realize like, geez, they, yeah. they, they're it's like oh man, we got him, we got him now, huh? And it's like if they only knew that it's like if he exactly called, if he if he just called his wife to say hey I'm doing this maybe they would have gotten a clue but but yeah 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 that she wouldn't have answered so that you know what we need to, we need to talk about that scene step back for just a sec here there is a scene where Tracy calls Somerset mm-hmm. and wants to meet him and talk and she reveals to him that you know I, I was a teacher and I'm miserable here and you know David is a big for his career and but we're having a kid and he doesn't know and Somerset reveals something about himself is that you know he. 
he and a girlfriend, you know, were going to have a kid at one time and she decided that you know, they decided to, to have an abortion or whatever. And he regretted it the rest of his life. And he, he told her, you know, it just brings her to tears is, you know, if you ever you know, if you decide to keep the kid, you better spoil that kid as much as you possibly can. You know, don't look back on you know life with regrets. Make the right choice now. Talk to your husband, you know, all this stuff. He's given her this great life advice. And it's Gwyneth Paltrow is fantastic in that scene. Maybe one of the best scenes of her career. And it's again, just this small, almost nothing thing, but it's so powerful to watch her go through those emotions with Somerset there at that little diner. Oh yeah. That scene in the diner. And there's another scene where Mills and Somerset are talking in a bar and they're just talking about both of those scenes are just, they're just talking about how horrible like the world is and how horrible people can be. And how, you know, I can't think of another studio Hollywood movie where it, it's about as pro-abortion as I've ever seen a, a studio movie be. And it's, it's yeah, just, it's, it's really subtle and weird that they sneak it in like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but the, and the movie is so grim that you, like, <laughs> if you lived in this city while this was going on, you wouldn't, you know, be clapping when someone said, oh, we're having a kid. It's like, are you, are you are you really sure? Did you read the newspaper? What's happening in the city? Or and better, then, have you have you made plans to move yet? Because this yeah. is not the kind of place you bring up a family in. And and, and I do want to at this point. I want to bring up about about Andrew Kevin Walker in this and this movie is that you know as much as it's a such a taut you know film noir murder mystery, the movie is such a clear fu to New York City or any city, even though the name of the city is never said. Uh, Andrew Kevin Walker on the commentary talks about how the tone of the movie and everything is inspired by his time working at a tower records in New York city, hating every minute of it. And we're yep. living in the city, working there. And it's clear, uh, with that in mind, it's clear that Andrew Kevin Walker did not have a Woody Allen film style, amusing time no. in New York city. <laughs> it was not an episode of Seinfeld. You know, you don't come up with something like, you know, the knife dick. Unless you've had some really <laughs> bad experiences. Uh, but, and it is just a great, uh, screenplay, you know, along, cause along with that, this, you know, this amazing you know, crime story with this case, so many great speeches about apathy and what people are really are like. And, uh, we're getting to, you know, the scene in the back of the car with, with John Doe and, uh, oh, and his th- views look, on life. My favorite scene in the film is this car ride with Spacey. Pitt and Freeman in this car and they're they're essentially just trying to get him to talk a little bit right because you know it's over at this point right he's yeah. he's done I mean he's he hadn't been sentenced but he signed his confessions and all this stuff but you know then nothing's gone before the judge yet and, and so there's time to to still mull over so they're just trying to get him to talk you know they're they're like yeah, yeah that what you thought you were doing God's work or whatever and he'll slowly reveal over and over again and I love when he goes on that just two minute rant it's classic spacey you know, when he just starts ripping lines off and he's just eating the scenery like a friggin' shark. I mean, it is amazing watching him and he punctuates it with, uh, I think it starts with, uh, when they talk about, you know, killing innocent victims. Is that God's way or something like that? And he said, only in a world this shitty would you call any of those people innocent. And I thought, now that is messed up. Like that, that is one of the most messed up punctual lines in this whole film. And man, does it work. Oh yeah, it's it's such a it's such a great dialogue scene with all three of the three of the actors in the car. And one of my favorite things, it cre- I keep forgetting about it before I see that scene is is uh, um, Somerset looks in the rear view mirror, rear view uh, window to look at uh, John Doe. He's like he's literally shaking in his seat with with excitement. And we know 
what he's excited about. And, and so with that, I just, it just it couldn't be more creepy. A guy, a guy, he's so excited. Oh man, they're going to find that head in a box in about 10 minutes. And it's so disturbing. Uh, and again with him, you know, his speech about, you know, how could you call these people innocent is at the end of all this, we finally meet the guy and he, the last thing he has is remorse for his crimes. He, he thinks he's, whether it's God's work or not, he think he thinks he has done the right thing. He thinks that what he has done will, uh, show the world or show this city. It'll make them all look at themselves and realize how bad it is and how maybe, maybe his goal is, he thinks maybe this is how the city will get fixed as people find this is the could be more of an exclamation mark on how horrible this city is, is this is a city where this happened. So maybe we need to clean things up. I think he even says it there is that, you know, after today, they're all going to remember me and they're going to remember you detective. And I was like, he keeps yeah. throwing him in and I'm like, Man, because again, you know, knowing the secret of it, you just have to watch the movie and kind of see it unfold. Sitting in the theater, I'm sitting there going like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like, I didn't see, I did not see this coming, like at all. And I've heard, you know, different people say, oh, you can see it coming from a hundred miles. I'm like, bullshit. If you're into the movie, you don't see this coming. And and there's no way. And I I have to ask you that when you finally got around to seeing this, you said you knew the the deal about the head in the box. How did you know that? Well, uh, I didn't like, I didn't look, like, look up the plot online on my own. What happened was, uh, one of the all time movie twists, you know, how, like, how could anyone possibly see this coming? Well, this movie that I wasn't allowed to see at the time, and whether it was 2000 or 2001, it came up on the excellent Comedy Central quiz show called Beat the Geeks. And, uh, the movie geek, the final question of that episode was, what was in the box at the end of seven? I don't even think Ooh. I knew what seven was. And he said, he said, well, it goes against my cardinal rules of ruining the end of movies, but I got to say it. And the answer was Gwyneth Paltrow's head. So that's how I knew what happened at the, at, at, uh, at the end of seven. But even with that, the, the, the way that that scene is cut together, it's still, it's still like, even though I know what is happening in the scene, I can't believe it because I can't believe a, a movie w- w- would do this. Yeah, I mean, what what happens is he's mailed, he's courier delivered that head out to the middle of nowhere with these cops. You've got the SWAT team in the in the copter circling above, making sure nothing else is going down or whatever. And Somerset goes out, and this is what gets me. I'm like, was Mills supposed to go and intercept that box, and it just happened to be Somerset, so that gave John Doe the chance to torture him a little more with hmm. all of his talking? Because what if it had gone the other way? That that's what I always wonder is if this had gone the other way, how would it have ended differently? Because you know, could he have stopped him before he got back with the gun? Because as it goes, I mean, Somerset realizes who's in the box, and I think there's like one frame of something that's like an insert of Gwyneth Paltrow's face, and that box is around it or something. It's it's one of those kind of exorcist you know things that's sort of there you have to really look for it to see it but it's it's there for a second and there's like one golden hair that's kind of sticking out of the end of the box that he's looking at that gives you the clue and he you know he's calling the SWAT team off and I love how he says you know John Doe's got the upper hand you know so we're 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 in his control now let's see where he's going to play this for and the whole time he's just torturing Mills with this you know I wanted to play husband but I took your wife's head and he's like what did you just say and I mean it's like this thing and then it comes down to the end and this unbelievable ethical dilemma of if you murder a suspect David you're done like there's there's nothing we can do for you if you do this you know justified or not there's nothing we can and I'm like 
how messed up is this whole story? And, and I just thought, what would you do? You know, what do you, do you shoot him anyway or what? And I don't know. It's God. It's so difficult to even put yourself in that place and think about. Oh yeah. I think it's some of Brad Pitt's best acting in the movie when he's, he's got the gun. Like it's all, he knows exactly his his wife's head's in that box, but he, and, and Somerset tells him if you shoot him, he wins and the case is done. And, so he's, he, he, that moment where he just, he just like looks away and just goes, Oh God, like he looks like he's ready to throw up. Cause he cannot compute is that Somerset is pleading with him. And Somerset also knows I can't talk. I know this is not going to work. Me talking. I can't, how do I talk Mills out of doing this? And, uh, and can I tell you, like part of me wonders if there ever was a moment that they, had it turn where Somerset kills him. So Mills can't do it because you know, his career's over, so he goes down for him, you know, or whatever. I wonder if that was ever part of the thought. I don't remember ever hearing that in any of the commentary, but that's an interesting way you could have looked at it. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, he, he, throws his, he throws his gun away quick, you know, so he's he's unarmed at the end of this thing. Mills is the only one with that gun. Oh, yeah, and, 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 th- and this, this entire scene, I mean, I know that they they rewrote this movie a bunch of times. I mean, I know, I know that, uh, the first draft that new line got interested in this movie in the first place, they bought it, but they had it very quickly. You look okay, well, we got to rewrite a different ending, but, and then Fincher agreed to do it based on accidentally getting a hold of the first draft. So well, I want to do this movie, the head in the box movie. And the producer said, well, actually we gave you the wrong one. They gave him a new draft. And apparently the, the, they they cleaned it up entirely, and it ended with Mills and Somerset stopping John Doe before Mills's wife is even uh, is even hurt. Uh, and Fincher talked to the head producer of the movie, Arnold Copelson, and and Finch he told Fincher, look, he said, look me in the eye, and told him in no uncertain terms, this film will not end with a head in a box. This is like you know, this is 1995. This kind of stuff like has not really happened in in movies and and Fincher talked his way through that and said how he 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 kind of pulled his own John Doe talking about how how this movie will be forever remembered and how he said people will talk be saying to each other forever like like after this movie comes I man did you see the head in the box movie and Copelson heard that realized how the potential of this kind of a cult hit on his hands and you know and there we go Gave the blessing for it to go ahead anyway, which is, that's a great story though, because now this, one of the things that when you learn about Fincher and things is one of the things he learned from his experience on Alien 3 was to never care about something so much that you're not willing to walk away from it. Hmm. You know, the, the lesson of heat essentially is that y- if you care too much about it and more than the studio ultimately does, you'll never be able to get what you want. So if you want it your way, you have to find ways to subtly get it done. You can't just bull your way through it. And so what he learns how to do is perform Inception, basically. <laughs> I think yeah. I've heard that story, too, where he's just like, by the end of it, Coppelson thought it was his idea to, you know, to put the head in the box. But that was what Fincher had learned how to do, is to be persuasive like that. And I think that's fantastic, because there's no other way this movie can end. It has to end this way, you know, with, with the head in the box. I'm just positing, you know, other ways it could have gone. Like, if, if Mills had gone after the box, of course, he'd have been freaking out on the side of the road, 
do you think Somerset would have killed him? I'd say no, because he's so immeasured a person. I don't think he would ever give into his emotions like that. And I'm almost glad that he doesn't, because that would be a betrayal of the character. If he all of a sudden just shot this guy, then that would be a complete reversal of everything he's tried to teach Mills, right? So the fact that he throws his gun away, he tries to reason with him, and again, Pitt with that great performance and what finally sets him off is he has a, a memory of his wife's, you know, smile. Like maybe that was the, the last thing he saw that morning before yeah. he took off. Just unloads the whole clip into the guy. And I mean, yeah. it's, and there's, there was a great insert shot though of Kevin Spacey when he's walking up to him to shoot him. Spacey just closes his eyes and just has this relief look on his face. And it's like, this is exactly what this guy wanted to happen. Yeah. Like he, he tells him like, be, you know, become vengeance, become wrath. And it's, and yeah, that, that moment, whatever this 10 seconds is after he does pull that trigger, that shot of Somerset's looking away, kind of half disgusted, half, yeah, I get it. And Somerset, I mean, I mean, Mills, he's like, he's already killed him, but he keeps shooting him. Like he's just shooting, clearly like, probably just shooting him in the head, just blowing his head apart. Like it's, it's such a, there's no, like, there's no joy about the villain being killed. Like the villain, the villain one, but Mills is like, maybe this will make me feel better as he keeps shooting him. And it, you know, clearly doesn't. I can't, I can't remember the first time I saw, him, but it must have been just like, how do you react? Like, 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 like a California helicopter. He doesn't know what to say. He's just like, I, I, call, call somebody. Call everybody. Call everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, my wife got a kick out of that too. She's like, call everybody. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that's exactly what you would say. Cause what, what the hell do you say at the end of that? Like, oh, crap, what's going on down there? And it's totally out of control. And then that last shot of Brad Pitt in the squad car with just that complete far away look in his eyes. His eyes are like totally dilated and he's just, he's just gone. Like mentally, he's just gone. And you have Somerset and, and, uh, the captain standing there talking and he's like, you know, I'll do whatever I can for him or whatever. And he's like, well, where are you going to be? He's like, I'll be around. You know, like in other words, eh, I'll hmm. I'll hang around. You know, we'll do what we can for him, and you know, like they're going to do what they can for the guy. He's one of them. He's not going to go to prison over it necessarily, but his career's over. I mean, he'll wind up if, if he's even mentally capable of ever going on again. He's pushing papers across the desk till he can draw his pension or whatever. Like it's, it, and that's the thing is that you realize ultimately that the bad guy not only won, but he completely succeeded. He didn't get to do it in his own timeline. That's the only thing the cops did is they sped him up. But he got to do everything he wanted to do, Kurt. And I can't remember another crime film where the villain is so successful at what he or she wants to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, it beats the hell out of Boba Fett capturing Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back. This is like the, this takes the villain winning to, you know, uh, another level. I mean, completely. I mean, it's, it's, you don't hear of it. I mean, this just doesn't happen, you know, in, in any normal film. But again, this isn't a normal film. This is a messed up film. And then, it, then you have that weird, again, another weird ending sequence. And that's the first time I realized Kevin Spacey was in this movie because I was like, holy cow, who was that guy? Kevin Spacey? <laughs> the guy from Consenting Adults? That's what I knew him from <laughs> at the time. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, that's, that's kind of weird. You know, and uh, again, walked out of the theater, didn't have a word to say, Did, didn't know what to say at the end of this. And I still feel that way about this movie to this day is that it leaves you just punched in the gut. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Oh yeah. yeah. And well, I think we're at the, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to do the wrap up. So go ahead and, and do your thought. Kurt, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. What are yours for seven? Well, 
It's the one of the best closing lines uh, in any movie, if not my favorite, where he's Somerset is walking off and he says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Cut to black. Well, as I've yeah. said, uh, I've seen this movie a lot now. It's become one of my all-time favorites. It's the movie that made me a diehard Fincher fan. And since seeing Seven, I've gone back and seen, you know, I've seen all of his films, and while all of his movies are so utterly miserable, uh, and they are all so different, and they are also all so, they're all so great. You know, you got something like a true crime mystery with, with, with Zodiac. You got a movie that's like his version of The Graduate with The Social Network, and, or something like my personal favorite, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. All of his movies have that one thing in common, which is that they're all miserable. Uh, one thing that's not so much in Seven, but it's definitely in Fight Club and from then on is all the characters in the Fincher movie, you just, I don't, I don't see this that much in, in, in movies is they all have an attitude. Like when we encounter all these characters, it's like we've all caught them on a bad day. They're all, they're just copping a two. They're snippy. They're just like being a dick. And I mean, you, I, and you watch House of Cards, the show that, you know, Fincher produced. The whole show is that where everyone is just, Everyone is like, you want to say after, like, that was uncalled for. Everyone's just a dick. It just, and it just adds to the unpleasantness. Like, it's not bad enough, all this murder and death. The people are just unpleasant. And, and they're all, all of his movies are stories about how horrible the world is or how horrible something can be. Like, Gone Girl is the movie about how horrible marriage can be. Dragon Tattoo is like a document on how horrible, how horrible being a woman can be. And Seven is the movie, along with Taxi Driver, about how horrible a city, the bustling metropolis, can be. Every city can be, can be amazing, but, but Seven just shines a spotlight on the disgusting underbelly that's in every city if you look hard enough. Seven is 21 years old now. Uh, 1995, this movie came out, and watching it now, I don't think any part of this movie will age. I mean, I was thinking about that. It's like the act, the cast of this movie, uh, they're all still working and still doing big stuff. Gwyneth Paltrow's in the Avengers, uh, Kevin Spacey's on House of Cards and, and so on. Like how many other movies from 21 years ago, whereas the whole cast is still like big stars doing great work with great directors. And, but this movie, you could release this movie tomorrow and it would still produce all the same reactions because the world sure hasn't gotten any better. And the, you know, the general message of this movie and every other Fincher movie holds true. And that is, you know, it's basically Fincher says this with every movie. He's like, "Life is shit. Fuck you." Like just, uh, just like you know, like, you, you you feel like shit, and you know, yeah, that's that's what I'm here for. And seven is every bit as thrilling and disturbing and as absorbing. The world we see is so you know, you just you, you're totally forgetting about your plans. You have the rest of that day when you're watching this movie, and I think it really is. One of the best films ever made, and I absolutely give it an extra large head in the box. I mean, popcorn. <laughs> I think you can put your head all the way through the popcorn yeah. in this one. I, I'm with you, man. This is a fantastic film, but I'll say this about it. It's not one I can watch often, and I'm the horror hmm. guy. I mean, I <laughs> love stuff, but I'll tell you now, this one is it's a once a year like if if that often it had been a couple of years since I'd seen it when we decided to do it for this review and i'm I'm kind of glad of that. I think this movie ages it it's timeless like you can watch it and and it still holds up every bit of it does and the only thing you're missing is all the cell phone technology that we have yeah. now you know it, that's the, but there's a little bit of that in there, but you really don't need it. It doesn't matter you know in this case this movie uh is is fantastic every time, but it's very, very hard to watch. 
and it's hard to watch over and over again. And so I'll say that if you've never seen it and like you, you watch it and you listen to this review or whatever and you're like blown away by it, it'll be one that you're going to go, you know, I gotta, I got I'm going to have to go back to that at another time. I can't, I can't go back to that immediately here because this, this movie's just too messed up. And, and it is. This movie is, very messed up, but it's very good. And there's so much you can enjoy from it. You can watch it just from a, a technical standpoint of cinematography and setting up shots and working through a script and things like that. You can watch it from the, the aspect of the, the way the characters and the actors balance out to the way that, you know, it's a violent, gory film, but you don't ever see any of it. It's all implied or it's all described. I mean, it's all those things that we've talked about. We've praised it a ton, and I think it deserves it. This is the kind of film that is fantastic, even though it is so difficult to watch and so difficult to to go through. It's it's one of those classic pieces of cinema. And it, and I'll say now, I think it's Fincher's best film. I I, I love a lot of what he's done. Uh, and even in later years, Dragon Tattoo, I think, is underappreciated. That's good. The game is very good. Um, Social Network, you know, I'm not a big fan of Benjamin Button, but I, I that's a well-made film and a very interesting topic. Hmm. But this guy, I mean, I thought Gone Girl was, was fantastic when I saw it. I've seen it a few times, but it's one of those that, like, I can watch that about once every eight to nine months, and then, okay, I kind of got to put that away for a little while. And I think Fincher works like that. And he's okay with that. Cause like I said, in the beginning, he doesn't want you to love his movies. He wants you to appreciate them and learn from them. And I think you can do that. This is extra large popcorn all the way. Fantastic film. And I'm glad we finally got to talk about it here on film strip. Now you and I, we're doing our spring of Palooza. I call it, which is just sort of a lot of one-offs of things. Yeah. I mean, we've got good grief. I mean, we've done like a bunch of Michael Crichton, random films. We had Congo <laughs> and sphere. And you know, we did, we did some awful thing called the planet of the dinosaurs, which is hilarious. Um, that Nick, came up with and we did uh, you know ron and i've done a lifetime movie called no one could tell with fred savage and <laughs> candace cameron and you know i mean it is the most random spring ever but you and i got like the jewels out of it, i think we're yeah. in seven this time and then we're going to reconvene in a few weeks so we're going to do the usual suspects another movie that's you know over 20 years old mm-hmm. and i would argue still holds up just as well and i can't wait to talk about that one with you man that's going to be a blast been a while since i've seen that it's actually been two or three years since i've watched that film so will be fun to go back and visit Brian Singer's uh, entry into uh, Hollywood, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell folks again about the uh, Fabish Factor Film Podcast and uh, the Fabish Factor Facebook page. Well, yeah, the Fabish Factor Film Podcast you can find on iTunes and on continuousplaypodcast.com. We get into, we try to go for, uh, we don't do as many shows as uh, as other shows because we try to get as much in, into one show as possible. Like there are 19, we did a show on the films of 1986 that was three and a half hours long. We're just trying to get as much films and in, 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 talking into one show as possible. And we're working on uh, other shows. We're trying to get a, a Tarantino show off the ground. Just got, need schedules to line up and so forth. But uh, we will continue. And uh, you can also find the Favish Factor Film Group, where we get into those very same conversations just through uh, text and keyboards. Uh, but find us on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Good good group to be a part of and, and enjoy. And, and catch up with us on Facebook, too, folks. You can find the Continuous Place uh, Facebook page there under the Filmstrip page. You can also find our website, ContinuousPlayPodcast.com, and you can go to either the Fabish Factor page, you can go to the Art of Slaying, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, all seven seasons reviewed there for you. Or um, you can go to the, the Filmstrip podcast, which if the, the Spring of Palooza here doesn't uh, let you know, we've kind of done a little bit of all of it at one time. We even did a documentary about the guy that invented the Jelly Belly uh, once, <laughs> and 
so I mean, you know, we've we've really covered it all. I mean, we've done the worst <laughs> films ever made, The Room, and again after last season, uh, we've got all kinds of fun stuff uh, going on here. So uh, tons of tons of things out there for you to enjoy, and we appreciate your support. Catch us on iTunes if you like the show. Leave us a good review. That always helps people find the show. Let us know what you think too. You know, if if you think we're over praising Seven or something like that, then fine. You know, feel free to disagree with us. Uh, your opinion matters just as much. We enjoy doing this show and interacting with you all as well. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.